So I mentioned earlier, uh, at, uh, before, or maybe right before the preaching, that what I'm going to try to do during this time is to take um, a theme, in some respects, we can call it a theme, and develop that uh, through the various times that we have together uh, so that hopefully the, the whole will be greater than the sum of the parts. There may be some who cannot make it to all uh, things. That's fine. I think each will stand on their own as well. Um, but you'll, you'll see the title of the sheet here is The Theme of the Sword. The Theme of the Sword. And I think it's uh, very valuable to uh, look at this theme as it appears, okay, that was the, okay, as, um, as it appears across the Bible, and in particular in the book of Genesis. And so I'd like us to look at that now. And, and let me say this as well. Um, my style of teaching is to allow for breaks. If anyone has a question about anything, I, I really enjoy some forms of interaction. So if you have a question, don't hesitate to raise your hand. I may pause at certain times and ask if there are any questions. And if you have one, then feel free to ask that. It's, you know, preaching is not the place for interaction, but Sunday school provides a good place for that. So, so uh, the first point as we think about the theme of the sword is uh, what I will say that the theme is not just a theme. And what I mean by that, if you're familiar uh, with the term biblical theology, uh, you probably are, uh, given Reverend Busey, um, if you look out of the landscape of what's called biblical theology, you'll find that oftentimes there'll be various books published, the biblical theology of this, the biblical theology of that, and, and, and sometimes those books are helpful, but, but other times I find them to be just sort of um, random. You know, an author will take something and then trace it through the Bible. But the question is, is that theme, you know, is it significant? Is it one that should be emphasized as you trace it through the Bible? You know, you might take um, the, you know, biblical use of hands or feet, and I'm sure you could create a biblical theology of those body parts, but, but would that be useful and profitable and worthwhile? And, and sometimes that's the way I feel when I look out and look at these biblical theology books. Um, and so I'm, I don't think, I didn't just pick up on what I would call a random theme here. Uh, I think this is a theme that is echoed in the Bible itself, and we've accented that in various ways in Reformed theology. Um, another way of sort of thinking about the theme of the sword, and we're going to lay that out in, in various ways, it's a variation on the theme of judgment, right? And so you, you can see the theme of judgment in the way Reformed theology has understood the fourfold estate of man. Are you familiar with that? And the Westminster Standards talks about the estate of innocency, the estate of sin and misery, the estate of grace, and the estate of glory. And so even from the very beginning, uh, there was the, the threat of judgment, right? And the day that you eat of the knowledge of the uh, tree of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. 
Dying you shall die, it says in Hebrew. And, and so that, that, that threat of judgment emerges, and then you see it again, even in the second estate. When man is in the estate of sin, there is a promise to bring judgment. Prom- the judgment will be brought upon the head of the serpent through the judgment of the seed of the woman, the Messiah, that will fall upon his heel. And then that, that judgment um, theme expresses itself, as I've already alluded to, as, as I've already stated, right at the end of Genesis 3, where the way back into paradise is guarded by what? The flaming sword. The flaming sword of God's judgment. And so this theme is, is just the sword theme, you could put it this way, is a variation of the theme of judgment that, that is threatened to, to the one who should break God's covenant and it is the judgment which the covenant uh, keeper, the Messiah, takes upon himself. As we saw that today as we looked at Genesis 15. Um, and so I'd like to, to mention some other ways in which we see that uh, theme expressed throughout the Bible. Um, again, I mentioned there you see it in 1C1. Genesis 3, 22 through 24, there is the sword uh, enlarged, the, the sword of judgment placed before the entrance back into God's holy presence. So it occurs at the beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? The fiery sword. You had the presentation of that fiery sword as well at the end of the Bible. Um, Revelation um, 19, actually I have this printed out, so I may not uh, turn to it. Um, Revelation, I'll just allude to some of these passages. Revelation 19, um, in, in chapter 12, very interesting, uh, or verse 12 of chapter 19 of Revelation, the Lord Jesus appears, the word of God, riding on the white horse, Right? And he has eyes like a flame of fire, Revelation 19, 12. Um, his enemies face fire, Revelation 19, 20. And he has a sword coming out of his mouth, Revelation 19, 21. Fire and a sword placed at the end of the Bible. Sort of reminds us the way that the Bible begins, doesn't it? The fiery sword. Uh, And so what is granted to the Lord's people after the fire, uh, what is it that is granted to God's people after the sword which comes out of the word of God's mouth is placed upon the nations and after the one with flaming eyes of fire faces them and casts them into the lake of fire, fire and sword, What then in Revelation 22 is gifted to the people of God? Well, again, the very same thing that the flaming sword was guarding in the book of Genesis, the tree of life, or in Revelation 22, trees of life, as the the hope of the glory of enjoying God forever is made so manifest as it will be in heaven, the trees of life going down um, the sides of the river of life. And so, um, and so we, we see that 
theme being developed in the beginning and then the end of the Bible. Uh, before we move on to talk a little bit more about this theme in Genesis, any, any questions about that in general before we move on a little bit more? Okay. Okay. Well, let's look on a little bit more. I, all, I already mentioned to you Genesis 3.24. It's in point two. Uh, and I won't uh, repeat that, but I, I will just mention again. So when we come to Genesis 15, as we looked at it today, I think if you're following the trajectory of the narrative, you begin to see that this image is very significant for understanding what's going on. The Lord communicates in various ways. When you read the epistles of Paul, uh, he, he communicates through this discursive sort of epistolary writing. And when you read the Old Testament, he communicates through images. His revelation is saturated in imagery. And Paul will often pick that up in his uh, writings as well. But um, uh, the, the, the picture that I'm trying to build for you, and again, we saw that in Genesis 15, is the sword there. The sword which cuts the animals. And you'll remember uh, down in verse 18 of chapter 15, the Lord says that he, he makes a covenant, as I said, by cutting. In Hebrew, karat. He karats the covenant. He cuts the covenant. And um, that reminds us of this threat of facing the sword in Genesis 15. And now what I'd like to do is take a moment to address Genesis 17. We've reviewed a little bit, maybe seen this theme more broadly in the Bible. But I'd like to look at Genesis 17 with you for a moment. Um, we might turn there. Let's see, I'm just trying to see how far. I think I'll read the first 14 uh, verses. Uh, uh, follow me as I read through God's word here. Genesis 17, 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and said to him, Behold, my covenant, and God said to him, um, uh, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, many of these words and promises we have heard echoed by God in chapter 12 and 15, but, but then something special happens in verses 9 and following. 
God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your offspring after, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money uh, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And now these are very powerful words in the last verse. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Uh, Those are powerful words. And I'd like to now uh, try to bring together something which unfortunately I don't think Many Christians do bring together, uh, but they should. When you come to Genesis chapter 17 and you receive such powerful language that God says, this is my covenant. What's he say is the covenant? Circumcision. I think at that point, if, we're, if, if we haven't asked the question already, we should be asking the question, this is a very, this is a strange Thing. What accounts for this, the, the cutting, you know, off of flesh to make a covenant? Why that? Or do we just say, it, maybe that's not a significant thing to ask. I think we should ask the question. Only sometimes by asking questions, pausing and asking questions, do you get answers, right? And so as you read the Bible, as you study the Bible, Uh, Don't read passively, read actively. Ask questions. And if we ask the question, what is significant about that? What is significant about the cutting? And cutting language is used here. We begin to find the answer. And the answer is provided in the way Genesis 15, which we looked at during the sermon passage, and Genesis 17 are connected even though these passages are separated by many years, there's a crucial connection that goes on. Uh, We saw, I mentioned already, in Genesis 15, verse 18, that the Lord cuts his covenant with Abraham. That's how he makes the covenant. You see the end of verse um, 14 of chapter 17 Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I'm sorry, I have a typo there on the uh, outline. It says 17.4 without the bracket. should have a bracket on the end with 14 in it. There's a connection there between these two passages. When you come to chapter 17, the imagery... 
the conceptual apparatus that you ought to have in your mind to understand this tremendous thing, the thing which God says is my covenant. It's the ceremony that God himself undertakes in chapter 15 where the animals are cut and he walks through the pieces and he promises to face the sword of judgment for his people. And so what in essence is happening is this. The covenant sign in chapter 17 reinforces the covenant ceremony of chapter 15. The covenant sign testifies and witnesses and helps explain the covenant ceremony. Now, I don't know that, maybe I will deal with this, but, um, 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 yeah, I will, I, will deal, I will deal with this in a little bit. This is very, very helpful in addressing the issue that often comes up for us Presbyterians, right, about children and children being received into the covenant. You know, how can someone be received into the covenant, we are sometimes asked, through receiving the sign of the covenant, if they've not done anything to respond to that sign? Um, And I think this helps us to understand that as I deal with this now and then even more tonight, it will really help explain that. When we get to the New Testament, circumcision is no longer a sign of the covenant, is it? What, what re- I almost said it. I'm not going to say that. I almost said what replaces it. Um, I'm a little bit against that language. What fulfills it? Baptism. Baptism. And understanding the way circumcision functions as the sign of the covenant witnesses and explains what goes on in chapter 15, where God walks through the pieces, where God faces the sword, will be most useful to you in understanding the new covenant sign of baptism. Because not only is the connection between Genesis 15, the ceremony of the covenant, and the sign of the covenant, you know, rarely, maybe you're better than me, but for me, uh, growing up, I rarely have ever made any connection between those things. But I think also the connection between circumcision and baptism is is sometimes missed in terms of how are these things similar as images, as symbols, as sign? What's the connection? And so let me try to explain that to you now. As Abraham was provided the covenant ceremony in chapter 15, which is um, fleshed out, I guess, trying to be funny there, but in, in chapter 17, you know, with the cutting of the flesh, the covenant sign applied as the language of uh, chapter 17 says, in the flesh. What's going on is this. God is essentially saying to those who receive the sign of the covenant, there is a sword of judgment to be faced. We've already seen that sword unveiled in Genesis 3:24. God faces it in chapter 15. And the sign applied now to the covenant member is not a sign of what they do. It's a sign which says this, this sword must be faced. You face it in me. You face it as I promise to walk through those pieces and to be cut in half, to be destroyed on your behalf. 
But if you won't do that, then the, you haven't invalidated the sign of the covenant. You'll face that, that sword. You don't want to do that, of course. Come the proper way. Come in faith. Come believing. Come trusting that I, the Lord your God, will face that sword for you. Um, I'd like to give you one more help uh, that will help explain the connection between chapter 15 and chapter 17. And then we'll go and look a little more carefully uh, at the connection between the sign of the sword and circumcision and the sign of uh, the water given in baptism. Uh, And so you'll see there on 3C, uh, 3C, uh, a connection mentioned between Genesis 15 uh, and 17. Now, if you look at verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 17, um, I'm going to have to find this. Okay, I found it. I didn't mark it down in my notes. If you look at chapter 17, verse 22, I should have written that down in your outline, so you may want to mark that down. Genesis 17, 22. Look at this language. You probably passed over it many times without thinking. I mean, I did. But look at this language. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abram. God went up. I will give credit where credit is due. One of my professors, Dr. Klein, was very helpful in making some connections here. This language of went up helps us understand the way God was appearing to Abraham in chapter 17. I already mentioned that in Exodus 19, 18, God appears in the form of smoke and fire at Sinai. And God is is described there as going up. Going up in the smoke and the fire. And what Dr. Klein helpfully pointed out is that the language of Genesis 17, um, uh, 22, where it says God went up. The only other time that is used is when God appears in the smoke and the fire at Sinai. What that helps us understand then, and this would be very important for Abraham, is that the way that, even though it was separated by many years, chapter 15 and 17, the way God appears in the smoke and in the fire in the cloud of chapter 15 is the same way that he appears in chapter 17. And so it's one of those things that just, even more so, demands that we connect these two chapters. God appeared in the same way. Abraham should have remembered. We should make that connection as well. And so uh, now I'd like to move on and consider the connection between the covenant sign of the Old Testament, circumcision, and look at how it relates to the covenant sign of the New Testament, uh, baptism. Again, as I ask the question, when you get to chapter 17 of Genesis, you should, you should say, well, what, what is this image of, of, of cutting and the cutting of the four? Why? Why is that there? And if you make the connection with 15, you're helped out. Likewise, when you get to the New Testament and you see that now no longer is the covenant sign to be circumcision, but it is to be baptism, 
how is it that the imagery of baptism functions to replace the sign which in one sense was a sign of judgment i'm cutting i'm 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 leaving some things out here for the sake of time the covenant sign of uh, in the old testament was more than judgment there was a purifying aspect a cutting away of the old too but before you get to the purifying aspect there was the sort of judgment involved in circumcision and so the question that we need to ask is how is baptism remotely like that isn't baptism just about washing and purifying and cleansing um, it is that to be sure but there's a i think even more fundamental way in which baptism is connected to this old testament sign so i'd like to explore that through what i'm calling um, baptism and the fourfold new testament witness to the meaning of baptism and let me go ahead and give you my thesis i'll proceed like uh, i think think we have some some lawyers here um, I'll proceed like I'm in the courtroom and try to, to make, state my case and then provide the evidence for it. The, the thesis is this. Just as circumcision functioned as a, um, a sign of judgment that needed to be faced, some theologians call it this, a judgment ordeal that has to be faced. Just as circumcision was that in the form of the sword, so also is baptism. But you may have never considered how baptism functions in that way. Let me provide you uh, some passages which are, uh, I believe, very helpful in this regard. Um, the first one, and, and, and these four witnesses, they are four people. We'll, we'll, we'll summon four people to the witness stand. Uh, they are uh, John the Baptist, uh, Jesus, Peter, uh, Paul, excuse me, and Peter. So we'll look at those four figures. And first of all, the one who helps us to understand the meaning of baptism is uh, John the Baptist. We see there in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what you need to understand as you read that passage, the baptism, now John's doing his baptism by water. There's a corresponding baptism that Jesus is going to give that will be by fire. And what connects those two is the theme of judgment. The fire, we might think, well, it's connected with the Holy Spirit, so it must be a cleansing, purifying fire. Not so, because, and I don't have this open, it may be in the very next verse or a verse or two after, then John says what? And he will, he will clean his threshing floor with unquenchable fire. The one who comes after me is going to baptize and the baptism he has in view is an unquenchable judgment fire. Be prepared for that. Be ready for that baptism by fire that the Lord Jesus Christ will bring. That's what John is saying. It's not just the fire of cleansing. Well, that's the first witness to try to provide this connection between circumcision and judgment that they both entail, or, or circumcision and baptism, 
that they both entail facing judgment, passing through a judgment ordeal, if we can put it that way. The next passage, and I think this is perhaps even more helpful, is uh, it comes from the words of Jesus himself. We find those words in Luke twelve fifty. Jesus says in Luke twelve fifty, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now let me ask you a question. What is the baptism that he is so distressed about that he has to be baptized with? What is he speaking about? His crucifixion, exactly. He, he can't be talking about the baptism of John in the Jordan River. That was, that's back in, in Luke. It's back in chapter 3, Matthew in chapter 3 as well. It's looking forward to something. A judgment ordeal. A baptism ordeal that he's going to have to undergo where the floodwaters of judgment are going to overwhelm him. When you think of baptism, you need to be think about, thinking about baptism in, in, first and foremost in terms of it being a judgment ordeal. If I have time, maybe I can bring out then the cleansing, washing, purifying aspect as well. Um, what reinforces this is Jesus' statement in Mark 10, 38. He answers back uh, to those who are asking to sit on his right and left hand. What does he say? Uh, are you able to drink the cup? That I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Are you able to go undergo that ordeal of judgment that I am going to undergo? And so again, that is referring to the cross. The, the next passage that I would like to bring out to you, or the next witness that I would like to bring out to you to help draw this connection, this biblical theological connection between the theme of the sword, as we've seen it uh, laid out in circumcision, which is the judgment theme, and that found in baptism, is the witness of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, this is a very interesting passage if you've not considered it before. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized. They were all baptized into Moses and into the cloud and into the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock uh, and the rock was Christ. It's a very helpful passage to understand the book of 1 Corinthians, for if you know anything about uh, 1 Corinthians, you'll know that one of the main problems there was the food that they ate and the drank that they drank, which was um, the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, you know, you, you drink spiritual food, and, or you eat spiritual food and drink spiritual drink. God's people of old ate spiritual food and had spiritual drink. Those were spiritual realities. They drank from the rock, which was Christ. And so he's trying to make that connection, and he's, and he's telling them to not go about the Lord's Supper in a careless way. For those who were careless, eating that spiritual food and spiritual drink endured a sort of judgment, didn't they? 
But notice what he says earlier. He says, all who, who went through the cloud and the sea were baptized. That also was an ordeal unto judgment. Israel passes through safely in their baptism. Their baptismal waters are baptismal waters of deliverance because they, they pass through in faith. But there were some others baptized that day, weren't there? <laughs> who were the others, bad, others who were baptized? Yeah, the Egyptians. Yeah, yeah. Are, are you waiting? Okay, okay, good, good, good. Okay, tell me if I'm short on time. Uh, the Egyptians, yes. Now, it may seem strange to talk about the unbelieving world receiving baptism, but the next passage that we're going to look at will actually confirm that idea. Yes, uh, they passed through the waters safely. It was a baptism of, of deliverance, but the, you know, to understand what baptism is, it does threaten judgment. It overwhelms those who will face those waters without faith in Jesus Christ. And this idea of even the, um, the unbelieving world needing to face um, the baptismal waters of judgment is brought out in the fourth witness. Um, you know, a matter is established on the basis of two or three witnesses. We have four, so that should be sufficient. And that is Peter in 1 Peter uh, 3.20. 1 Peter 3.20, let me begin reading you that passage. Peter says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And now notice what he says to this is Noah's flood. And he says, baptism, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. So there's a couple of things we can notice from this passage. Number one, maybe you haven't considered this before, Noah's flood was a baptism. Or rather, he says, baptism which corresponds to this. It's very interesting in Greek. Uh, it is said to be the antitypos of this, or be antitypical, or to be the antitype. You ever heard that language before? The type and the antitype. Noah's flood was a type, a, a sign given of what happens in baptism. There is a judgment that must be faced. And for Noah and his family... They, they were baptized just like the Israelites safely. They passed through the waters of judgment. They were safe in the ark. But for what about those who were outside? Who did not pass through those waters in the ark? Of course, who is Christ? They were destroyed. They were overwhelmed. And so um, what, what this helps us to see uh, is this theme that runs through the Bible, the, 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 the good news of the gospel, that God does indeed deliver from judgment. He faces the, the sword, and the sword which threatened judgment in the old covenant 
is replaced by the waters of judgment in the new covenant. And now let me return to a point I made earlier, which I don't want to make this major thing. This is like what Presbyterians are, I guess, always talking about. It is important, but there's more to what I'm saying than just this. This is why baptism can function as a very wonderful, appropriate, and beautiful sign for our children who have not yet done anything. Think about it. Um, In the Old Testament, the, the son on the eighth day received the sign of the sword, a sign carved in their flesh as it was. What a vivid reminder of what God does in chapter 15 when he faces that sword. And the message, as I said before, is this. A sword of judgment must be faced. You face it either in the Lord who walks through those pieces, the servant of the Lord who is cut off for the sake of his people, or you will face the sword yourself. When I was new to, um, to Presbyterianism, The big question that loomed in my mind is, how can you apply a sign to a baby and then that baby grows up one day and and rejects the sign? Is does not have faith. Doesn't that invalidate the sign? Of course, I think the weakness in my thinking at that time is that the sign was all about cleansing and purifying and washing. It does signify that. But first and foremost, it signifies the baptismal waters of judgment, which which must be faced. And so as our children have that sign placed upon them, it's a sign which calls them to faith all of their life. It doesn't indicate necessarily that they have faith. Maybe they do have faith from the earliest of days, right? But what it's really doing is witnessing to what they need to deliver them from judgment. They need one who will face the baptismal waters of judgment on their behalf. Should they grow up and repudiate that sign, that doesn't invalidate it. It doesn't make it meaningless. In many ways, and this is a kind of a terrifying thing to think about, uh, it, it strength, you know, it... it <laughs> That meaning will be confirmed, but in a bad way to them. It will mean now, oh, you've spurned this covenant sign. You've spurned its message, though you've had the waters placed on you, though you've heard the gospel preached to you. And now you must face those baptismal waters yourself. And so the message is don't do that. <laughs> Come to the Lord, trust in him. Of course, uh, the, the way that, that um, symbolism is developed is then as that sign of, of, of facing the sword, now facing the baptismal waters of judgment, is faced in Christ, then those waters also do symbolize washing, pure, uh, purifying, cleansing. We see those two things come together. Can anyone think of a place where the two images of judgment and cleansing, washing, I could say outpouring, come together in a baptismal way in the New Testament. Can you think of a place where the two themes come together? Pentecost, yes. I'm going to go even to to one that may bring them together even more, but I'm going to definitely go to Pentecost. Can you think of one where both of those are highlighted? I think what Pentecost does is highlights um, 
Although there is a theme of judgment, too, because that's remembering the flames of fire back in Joel chapter 2, isn't it? So, yeah, I won't, I won't say no to that. There's one at least I'm thinking of right now where both are graphically brought together, and that's in Jesus' own baptism in the Jordan. When Jesus is baptized, that is an anticipation of what will happen when he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Jesus is picturing in his own person, and I'm not trying to prescribe a mode of baptism here, though I do think we cannot as Presbyterians say that, you know, immersion is an invalid mode, right? Even though Jesus' baptism is different from Christian baptism, it's not the same, so we, can, we could also have that discussion. But Jesus in his baptism goes down into the watery grave. He goes into the waters of baptism. By the way, the passage that we will look at tonight does say buried with Christ in baptism. So it's a watery grave that he descends into. And then he comes out. And what happens as he rises up out of the waters? What happens next? The Spirit descends. And I think there's the other imagery that we do associate very properly. The outpouring of the Spirit. Just as he goes down into the waters, into the watery grave, and was raised up, and there will be an outpouring of the Spirit, which is Pentecost. There we see that in a preliminary, proleptic way in Jesus' own baptism. It witnesses to what is to come in a very beautiful way. There are the two things which seem different. Judgment and cleansing, judgment and washing are brought together. Um, I would just say this now as I'm going to close. Um, what I'll do is to try to weave these together in the, the, the final way, the way that brings some, um, I think, the best clarity to, um, to God facing the, uh, uh, the promise that God would face the sword of judgment made in Genesis 15, extended in Genesis uh, 17. I'll try to bring that to its completion tonight. So you might take some time this afternoon to meditate on Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Just thinking about that, that might be helpful. Are there any questions about this material? Any questions? I realize I did actually leave one passage out, and I'll just say it for your own edification to, to show at least, hopefully I'm not too uh, kooky by developing the sword theme, which you know, perhaps you've not seen before. Mentioned Genesis 3.24, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. In the book of Genesis, it kind of comes to its highlight. I think maybe this is the place where Jesus is really saying, Abram saw my day and rejoiced. Remember that son who received the sign of the sword placed on him on his eighth day? He is the same son who Abram is about to plunge that knife, that sword, into his heart on Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22. The promised son is going to have to face the sword of judgment. So as Jesus, as as Abram saw God walk through the pieces in the fire and smoke, when his son faces the sword and has a dying and rising experience, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, that Isaac was given back in a resurrection form figuratively. Abram saw the day of our Lord. And he rejoiced, and we should too as we see that.
Well, if there are no more questions, then I will close us with a word of prayer. All right, let's pray. Almighty God, how we do thank you for your glorious covenant. You are a holy and perfect and righteous God, and none who dare approach you can approach you without facing that fiery sword which prevents anyone with perfect righteousness from coming into your presence. We thank you that Jesus Christ uh, did that for us, that promising yourself to us as our very great reward, even if that meant you would face the sword for us, Jesus Christ did so, having that sword plunged into his heart. He who was overcome by the baptismal waters of judgment on the cross, he has faced those waters which witness to us in our baptism, Face those waters of judgment in me or face them yourself. Oh, Lord, we look to you in faith. We trust in Jesus Christ, who has been buried in the waters of baptism, who has risen to newness of life and who pours out his spirit upon his church to grant us that resurrection life that we, too, might walk in newness of life in him. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen.